want to build a inclusive and welcoming space for people to get into tech and build cool stuff with each other, right? Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Welcome to today's show. Joining me is Akish. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well, David. How are you? David? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Um, I've got a question for you. Go on. Before we get into anything else. There have been seven billion mobile phones sold in the world since 1983. What do you think the top 10 list of best-selling phones ever contains? What sits at number one? I mean, the easy answer here would be the iPhone, but I don't think it's that. I'm going Nokia something or another. Yeah, iPhone would be the uh, obvious boring yeah. and incorrect answer. Nokia 3310 or 3330. No, no, it's 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 the... I don't know how do you how would you say this? Huawei. Because obviously, thirty three ten. We're off. It's, it's Nokia. The Nokia eleven naught. Eleven hundred. No, but it's Nokia. Eleven hundred. Well, okay, go with that. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I remember this phone. Yes. Oh, mate. Yeah, yes, I remember right. this phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, total sales of that. Uh, it was out between two thousand three, two thousand nine. Two hundred and fifty five million. Wow, that is mad. Yeah. That is crazy. now what. What's number two on the list? Uh, I'm, I'm going another Nokia or BlackBerry. It's the Nokia 1110. 1110. All right, hang on. I'm gonna... From 2005 to 2007. It's only out for three years. It sold yes. 250 million. Yes. See, I didn't think this was that popular, this one. Yeah, second biggest selling phone That is crazy. Ever. That is mad, right? God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Number three is an iPhone. Yeah, I'd say so. I was like, it's about time an iPhone gets in there. Yeah. Yeah, so biggest selling iPhone, iPhone 6. But number four, Nokia 3210. Oh, no, I remember this. I had this phone. Yes. 99 to 2000, 160 million, 3210. Yes, I had this phone. Number five, Nokia, the 1200. Oh, okay. Number six, Nokia, tied... With Samsung, the Nokia 6600, the Nokia 5230, as well as the Samsung something or other. Number seven on the list, the Nokia 2600. Number eight, Motorola Razr tied with the Nokia 1600. Very good phone. Very good phone. The Razr. Yes. (laughs) I had a Motorola Razr, yeah. But anyway, get back on track. Nokia at number nine with a 3310. Yes, the OG. And number 10 on the list, Nokia 1208. Wow. So Nokia, in every single spot on that list, apart from one iPhone entry, that is, frankly, incredible. If I'd said to you that top top 10, nine of the spots would have Nokia, you probably wouldn't have said that. No, but I would have gone for at least a third of the top 10. Insane. Yeah, very good. Now... You're probably wondering why the hell I've gone off down this massive diatribe for the first few minutes of the show, because our second interview, if you stay tuned, is with Chris Johnson, who is currently Nokia's head of global enterprise business. And the thing is, Nokia, massive success. Mm. They, they, were, they were snake. They were phones. They were the 3310. They were, you know, my generation, everyone had to have a Nokia. Our generation. Uh, well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> our generation. <laughs> But now, the world's leader in connectivity infrastructure. And they're needing to re-communicate with the world what Nokia are all about. And it's an interesting story, because not only do we talk about Industry 4.0, but it's a story about innovation and constant change. Uh, And so it's well worth listening to. But Akish, what do organisations need to be innovative and constantly changing? Uh, They need a good security network. They need fresh blood. Fresh blood. Okay. They need students. They, they need people. This is the best. This is <laughs> the biggest, <laughs> biggest link between two podcast <laughs> interviews I've ever done. Oh, sorry. And I've absolutely put a dampener on it. Sorry, Dave. You, you want to try that again? <laughs> try it again. What's, what's, what do companies need to innovate? I'm going to say people. Thanks for that. Jesus Christ. Sorry, I was what looking at Nokia. What we've got to work with on this podcast. Sorry. 
fucking God. That's because our first guest on today's show is John Gottfried, who is Major League Hacking's co-founder. Major League Hacking, you will find about a third of students in the US going through their, their programs. Not a course, as you're about to hear. But basically, um, John Gottfried decided to devote um, his life and the co-founders' lives to the next generation of tech talent getting in. So that's going to be our first interview. Loads to listen to, to stay tuned. We'll play this. Akish will stop having a look at Nokia's and uh, we'll be back with some comments. I'm talking to John Gottfried from Major League Hacking. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for having me. We're in your offices. Yeah, in New York. Uh, we uh, started here about 10 years ago, so it's been a nice long time in the city. What's the backstory? What's the bit that happened before 10 years ago to get you to that point? So MLH kind of came about uh, because of myself and my co-founder being impacted very personally by developer communities. Um, I actually got a history degree in school. And the thing that drew me into tech and really inspired me to pursue that as a career was going to uh, events like hackathons, meetups, uh, conferences, and meeting all of these really interesting, creative, and like diverse people that were not at all what my mental image was of, of the tech industry. I kind of thought it was more like office space, mm-hmm. where you have all these people like sitting in a cubicle hating their lives. And when I showed up, you know, people were working on all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, the, the first event I really went to that inspired me was this event called Music Hack Day, where it was musicians and programmers building like projects together. Uh, the winning project from that event, a guy took a Wiimote from you know the, the Nintendo Wii and built a violin, an invisible violin that you play by moving the Wiimote. And I, it just blew my mind. And after that, all I wanted to do was build developer communities. And you know, after a brief career in developer evangelism, I, uh, you know, quit my job with my co-founder Swift, and we decided to devote our lives to helping the next generation of technologists get in with MLH. And look, where you are today is a is a community, a global community, but in the U.S., um, where about a third of U.S. college students go through your program. I think you you mentioned before hit record one hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, so uh, about a third of computer science students in the U.S. participate in our programs every year. And globally, we work with about 150,000 students. Um, and it's not just computer science. That's about 50% of your audience. Yeah, we are very intentional about making sure that our programs are open to anyone who's interested in technology. Um, computer science is only one path into the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like myself, a lot of people come at it from a totally different discipline or angle and you know, learn through non-traditional means. You learn through non-traditional means. You've got to a position where this is being plugged into curriculums in college throughout the country. How did you manage that? I mean, did, did you did you start approaching colleges and then go, hang on a minute, who's this who's this kid with a with a history degree? You know, <laughs> sorry to to kind of make it quite trivial, but yeah. coming here and and telling us how we should be teaching our students. You, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm actually on uh, this advisory board for my alma mater. I went to a SUNY Stony Brook University uh, right. on Long Island in New York. And I'm on the advisory board for the computer science department. And whenever I show up for a meeting, everyone's always teasing me because I didn't actually get a computer science degree there. But, um, you know, I, I think, like, more broadly than that, like, we primarily work uh, through student groups themselves. So academia is its own culture and discipline and space that we kind of exist, like, in parallel to. And so when we go to campus, what typically happens is a single student or group of students go to one of our events. That could be at their school. It could be at a different school. They have an incredible experience, just like I did 10 years ago. And they're inspired to bring that culture back to their own campus. And so what happens is they come home and they say, I want to create this for my fellow students. And that's where we come in. They reach out to us, and we basically have staff who are training them, mentoring them, helping them, you know, deal with blockers and bureaucracy, and they get to build their own version of an MLH community. 
Um, this has happened, you know, many thousands of times on campuses across the world. Now. So, so the scalability is almost like a franchise model. You just give them the tools to be able to do it in the way that it, it's, it's successful and impactful. Yeah, you can call it a franchise model. You can call it a chapter model. That's right. probably more typical for okay. us. Um, but it is about giving people a framework and a structure to build their own communities. Mm-hmm. Every community that MLH is involved with is slightly different. Um, but they all revolve around this idea that they want to build a, you know, inclusive and, and sort of welcoming space for people to get into tech and, and build cool stuff with each other, right? Like, that's really a core principle. And I guess whilst college or university experiences around the world, elements of it are universal, at the same time, your college experience in New York will be very different to a college experience in L.A. So it, it stands to reason that it's, to a degree, different. Yeah, and it's not even, like, just New York versus L.A., right? Like, think an Ivy League school versus a community college or uh, a university in India versus a university in the U.S., Mm. right? Like, it's totally different everywhere. Um, And so students need to be able to kind of, like, take it in their own direction that serves their own local community. And we are the connective tissue between all of those different local communities. And so that's how we scale, right? Like, it's about enabling other people to, uh, you know, empower their own peers with our support. So we've talked a little bit about giving people the framework. What what does it look like? How how do you deliver this, these courses, the education to help Mm -hmm. upskill students? So it's funny, you described it as a course. Um, it's a bit looser than that. Uh, you know, anyone who, who's been an engineer for any amount of time probably understands somewhat like subconsciously that you learn by doing, right? There's a lot of trial and error in building technology. And we try to replicate that when we, when we work with our students. So often what they are putting together is not a course that people sit through, but it is an environment or an event that gives people like a dedicated time and space to play around and build things. Um, what we started with and probably what we're most known for is hackathons. Uh, a lot of different definitions of hackathons out there. I always call them an invention marathon. Um, in our world, it's a 36-hour event. Uh, it takes place over a weekend. You show up with nothing except for an idea and maybe a couple of friends, and you come out the other end with a working prototype of some piece of technology. Could be a website, could be a mobile app, could be a homemade self-driving car. Like, who knows? Um, But through that process of taking something from idea to reality, you are forced to learn, to collaborate with people, to break stuff, uh, and, you know, do your, your best to come out the other end with something you can show off and be proud of. Now, I think it it's interesting, isn't it? Because you are at the forefront of understanding skills mm-hmm. that students want, that companies are looking for, and mm-hmm. where those trends are. And, and skills is something that the industry is kind of obsessed with in terms of continuous learning mm-hmm. and, and so on. What is it that organizations are looking for from your students right now? And also, what are students interested in learning? I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there, so I'll cover them one at a time. I think that students, um, especially now, are interested in making an impact. Um, There is, uh, for very good reason, uh, a lot of interest right now in technology for good, right? Like, how can technology influence things like climate change? How can technology influence things like politics? Uh, there are all of these ways to apply technology in really kind of unique and timely ways. And just to jump in and derail a little bit, I mean, you probably have some interesting stats around demographics in terms of where certain communities have leaning towards certain topics. You know, does that impact thing come through in in certain demographics more than others? I think that that is a pretty widespread phenomenon that people are interested in impact. However, like... That could be skewed by the demographics of our community. Like, we tend to have a much more diverse community than a typical CS department does. Right. Um, something like 45% of our students are identify as non-male, for example. In a computer science department, it's more like 15%, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and I, I certainly I do think that, like, the more different viewpoints and people of different ba- backgrounds that you bring in, the more likely you are to have... 
a different shift in focus of what the community cares about. But yeah. Sorry, I interrupted your answer about skills and, and companies and what students are looking for. You said there was a bit of a disconnect. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I was saying that like students, they want to make an impact. They want to, you know, get a job at some point in the near future. Uh, and they want to find their people, right? Like having a actual support group and community is incredibly important when you're starting out. And this is a vehicle for them to do that. What companies care about is slightly different. They want to hire qualified, diverse candidates who can do the job that they need done. Um, the difficulty and, and where a lot of this disconnect plays out is in the actual like hiring and recruiting process. You know, most students coming out of school don't have a lot to show, right? Like they have their degree, they have their coursework. Maybe if they're lucky, they have an internship. Um, when you're a recruiter, you might be sorting through thousands of applicants or resumes for a junior role, and you have very limited filtering criteria at your disposal, right? Like, what is their GPA? What school did they go to? You know, where did they intern in the past? Those are all pretty, like, simplistic filtering criteria to actually understand if someone's going to be a good employee or not. And we think that, like, things like hackathons or working in the open source world give you a differentiator that shows off not just like where did you go and how did you do in class, but like what are you capable of? Like what where, what are you actually interested in building? What have you been successful at? Where where have you, you know, found something that you're passionate about? And I think that's like a really powerful like way to identify candidates because the truth is like every company has a different culture. They all have different problems they're tackling. And it is a really complex matching problem to get the right people in the right organizations. You mentioned that the um, the scalability, the growth of the organization is very student-driven. Do yep. you see, though, companies getting involved and, and, and wanting to partner with those communities? Yeah, so one of the um, kind of like core principles of MLH is that in order to make our offerings accessible, they should be free for students. Uh, what that means is companies pay the bill. Um, granted, companies get a lot of value out of it, but they are the ones funding all of these communities, whether it's buying pizza for a club that wants to like do a you know, hack night on campus, whether it's you know, paying for a booth at a hackathon to talk to potential candidates, whether it's you know, working with MLH to reach 100,000 people over the course of a year. You know, companies are engaging with this because they are recognizing that it's a way to, you know, find their next generation of talent, find the next generation of developers who will use their platforms and technologies and ultimately, like, be a part of, like, this wave that's coming into the tech industry of, you know, people that uh, may have never otherwise gotten in the door. And the program is delivered through... Hackathons, in-person, virtual. You also have a, a, an immersive fellowship program that's mm -hmm. 12 weeks long, happens three times a year. Is this, a, is this an entry-level um, offering? Is it more layered, more complex that mm -hmm. you, know, you, could, you could do 12 weeks three times in a year at different levels? How, how, do, how do, can students, I suppose, evolve through the program? Yeah, so MLH is kind of designed to support people throughout their journey of becoming a, a developer. Um, often someone's first touch point is getting like dragged along to an event by their friend. Mm -hmm. um, they may not even know how to code at that point, right? And so we're often there when they're just learning to code and just trying this for the first time. You know, as they hone their skills, they might build more and more complex projects, become a leader in their local community, you know, continue kind of like building up the, the critical mass of people to do this together on campus. And we see the fellowship as the next step in that, right? It is a more advanced program that we offer where once someone knows how to code, they're proficient, they still need a way to kind of continue learning. And this provides them an opportunity to go deep on a particular subject, right? Like maybe you've spent three years at college, you know, learning about writing Go code or something, right? The fellowship gives you that opportunity to take everything you've learned and apply it on a real project that's used by real developers. Mm -hmm. um, and open source is this like incredible opportunity to do that because you can come in as a nobody and write a pull request or a contribution to a project that you've never had any interaction with before. And suddenly it's being used by millions of developers. 
right? And that can happen over the course of a couple of weeks with no, like, screening qualification at all. And so we see that as this, like, really awesome way to get a bunch of people who are early uh, to write something real and be able to show it off as part of their portfolio and resume as they go into the industry, right? Like, imagine you're interviewing for, for a job. Would you rather, like, hire the person who, you know, understands how to use a technology or has that actually written code that is part of that technology that you are using? You know, that's that's a really, like, unique thing. And over time, I can see that the scalability of this is very organic. Mm-hmm. Obviously, students, as you said, taking it to other campuses, uh, employers getting involved. And I imagine over 10 years, students becoming employers and going back and saying, hey, we used this whilst I was a student. We should now use it as an organization. Yep. What's the, what are the intentional steps or plans on your part mm-hmm. to try and, I suppose, take the best elements of that mm-hmm. and shave away stuff that might be a distraction? I mean, over 10 years, there have been a lot of product ideas we've tried that haven't worked out. Um, You know, we really treat building MLH as its own experiment, uh, and it evolves as the community's needs evolve. Um, For example, uh, we recently started doing a program designed to teach people site reliability engineering skills. Not my area of expertise, but what what turned out was... In the industry, there is this particular specialization that is incredibly difficult to hire for, and no universities are teaching those skills. And so you basically find this really nice sweet spot where if a student can learn that, you know, base skill set, they unlock an entire career path that, like, they didn't even know existed beforehand. And we find stuff like that all the time. A lot of it comes from direct feedback that we get from the students we work with. For example, like... Another thing that we started doing, which is directly related to the pandemic, was because schools moved online for a couple of years, a lot of in-person communities kind of like disintegrated or at least lost their momentum. And so students started asking us like, hi, like we're going back to school. What do we do now? Um, And we had to build a whole program from scratch that we're calling the Pizza Fund specifically to support people rebuilding their local communities. It's called the Pizza Fund because we give them money for pizza. But um, it, it's really a way for them to get people together with some guidance and support from, from an outside organization, even though they had a two-year gap in what they were doing. And from your own perspective, where do you think the industry is going? What skills are in hot demand? I think that <laughs> there are always trendy technologies in the industry, mm-hmm. but the trends change all the time. Um, I am not uh, a gambling man in how I predict technology trends because even over the 10 years we've been around, which is not a huge chunk of time in tech, um, things have changed a thousand times. You know, like I remember when uh, like Angular and React like first came out and no one even knew what they were. And now everyone learns them. Um, But that happens over and over again. It's cyclical. And so I think that like, the one thing that's not going to change in tech is that you need to learn how to learn and adapt quickly. And I know that's like really cliche and people say that all the time, but like knowing how to adopt a new technology and get up to speed really quickly and understand like some of the foundational elements of why they're, you know, designed a certain way, like that is its own standalone skill set separate from knowing how to code. So a methodology behind continuous learning effectively. I, I think it's a methodology. I also think it's a like muscle to be able to practice and fail and try again Um, and I think that the way that you get there is by practicing and failing a lot and trying again and again and again until you get it right Um, and you know things like open source contributions things like hackathons are a really powerful way to teach people the trial and error of being a software engineer Um, and that doesn't go away like even if you're 30 years into your career you know something is going to spring on you that you've never heard of before John, I want to thank you for spending some time with me today. Super interesting subject and obviously very, very uh, pertinent at the moment. Um, so thank you. And thank you for, you, thank you for uh, hosting us here. Thank you. Happy hacking. Right, there's, there's a lot to love here. Um, for a start, I love that he calls hackathons invention marathons. Um, mm. You know, why not? Uh, 
but I, I love that he's forcing students to learn and to to share. Um, I think this is this is interesting. It's interesting that he talks about breaking things because that's been something that's kind of become slightly not cool to talk about in technology, you know, move fast and break things. But I think this is in entirely the right context, you know, learning, sharing, working together, breaking things, playing. He talks about playing quite a lot. And I love the way that he talks about technology. Mm. And he, he talks about it with a, I want to say with an air of, of, of passion, but also with an air of, you know, almost to say that this is something that he wants to sort of leave behind, and this is what they're they're gearing, you know, their the, the sort of organisation to, and all these students and people that come through, um, you know, the the, the sort of program. Um, he wants he, he wants them to almost be empowered and carry on that message. You know, it seems it's very much less of a um, hi, I'm you know Bob Smith, and I've you know, attended the the major league hacking sort of program. I'm part of their, I don't know, community. And, you know, this is my sort of um, badge, right, of honor. He very much seems like it's don't just come and do it, but go out, drive that messaging, you know, speak to the other sort of students, speak to other people and, and dr help drive that community forward, I think, is it's almost, it's, to me, when listening to the interview, it seems like it's very much a, organic growth sort of you know um yeah i guess i guess program um you want to call it yeah because he, he says himself it's, it's not a course you learn by doing mm. um uh, it's it's about in, in creating an environment or an event to play around and build things mm. and i love the fact you talked you touched on community there he, he talks about the fact that there is a chapter model that, that you know the, the people who who start a major league hacking chapter in a particular uh, environment, they're building their own version mm. of a major league hacking community. Because as he points out, you know, he wants this to be accessible to people, whether they go to community college or the Ivy League. Mm. So it has to serve the local community. And they, as an organization, are the, the he talks about them being the connective tissue between those. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's where you know, these the sort of people that pass through the program, that pass through the the, the the sort of environment, when they go and do their sort of normal day-to-days or when they, you know, go and get involved in something else, they will help take this brand of, or, or, or energy of sort of, you know, not being afraid to, um, you know, not being afraid to, to sort of break things. I don't want to keep saying the same thing as you, but, you know, it's almost kind of uh dismantle stuff right and and say look you know this is what we need and um you know how to how to find new solutions or or newer ways of of kind of using these programming languages and whatnot and i mean it's 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 very very good i wish i mean i don't know if these sorts of things were around when i was a kind of student or, or you know kind of in that sort of era but i'd love to have something like this that was just open it was very free-spirited and you could it almost allows you to, it has a platform, but you can almost come in and choose to kind of take it how you want it, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, the one thing that I found very interesting was the way that you talked about recruitment and the way you talked about uh, what students are looking for and what employers are looking for. So you talked about students finding their people, finding a support network versus an employer who's finding someone who can get something done. And that, that feels quite transactional. And I, I don't know whether that was a comment. I'd love to talk to people who are more entrenched in the US labour market to find if that's a comment on, on the US labour market. Or maybe it's that I'm a little bit distant from Arzakish and you, you can say, no, this, this feels like it's very much on the money still. Mm. But he was talking about recruiters sorting through thousands of prospective candidates, various limiting uh, filtering criteria, um, maybe they've done an internship, there's a student GPA score, but he talks about the hackathons being a differentiator and kind of being able to point to what people are capable of and what people are passionate about. And that capability piece, you know, I felt that we were beginning to shift towards hiring on potential rather than hiring on experience. And maybe I'm a little bit, maybe I've drank too much of the Kool-Aid um, a little bit too too much in, in, in doing these interviews. But I don't know whether that's it. I love the way that he's talking, but it almost feels a little bit behind where I thought the conversation was. No, I think he's pretty much spot on because, you know, from a from a, from a recruitment perspective, you know, when it does come to software engineers, software developer, you know, these sorts of positions, yes, there are a lot of people that do this skill set, and and what you have to work out is, 
you know, for these skill sets, that you're not you're not just dealing with the local market. So if I'm sat here in London, I'm not just sieving through CVs from London. I'm sieving through CVs from the north of England, from parts of Central Europe, you know, Asia, these sorts of things, right? And depending on sort of various level of experience and that sort of thing, some organizations are still very archaic in their thoughts and very, Mm. you know, they have to have a certain amount of experience in this, X number of years on this, and, you know, have to have reached this level or whatever, and we have a two-hour technical test. And, you know, I mean, those technical tests are from, I don't know, the, the 1990s, early 2000s, right? And there's no need, you know. I'm sure you can figure out someone's technical capabilities by having a conversation, a deep a meaningful conversation, you know, about the, the sort of, um, uh, I, I guess, the task at hand. But I guess the point I'm trying to make here is you could definitely use, you know, the, 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 the sort of major league hacking sort of program as, yes, it's a capability thing, right? Like these individuals, if you do choose to hire them or engage with them on, on whatever in, in your organization, they come with an element of curiosity with an element of you know skill that will allow them to to you know come in and thrive in certain environments you sort of know kind of you know the level that they're playing at and then based on the potential and kind of what your organization looks like and kind of where you want to go and propel you can then see if they would be part of the challenge so i I think absolutely i think it's great um there's a lot of things here in london i mean i can give like a london perspective but you know, we, we, there's a load of things, um, you know, hackathon, programmer events, these sorts of stuff that go on. And if there are, if they are these things in people's profiles and bios and CVs, then from a recruitment perspective, of which I am, it definitely makes someone stand out more than just your box standard. Hi, I've got five plus years in, I don't know, Java. Well, it's, it's that passion piece, isn't it? Hmm. You, you feel that you, they're going to get in there and they're going to, um, you know, Every organization has a different culture, yes, mm. but you want people who will add value. And I think if you've got someone who's looking to learn continuously, and okay, we're talking about people entering the market, but if we talk more broadly about continuous learning, then it points to someone who is really passionate about the work that they do. Mm, exactly. And, and I think that passion is, I think uh, I'm not a software engineer, so I don't know, I'm, I'm probably not in the best place to, to say this, but I think being a good software engineer can get you maybe you know far but having that passion and that energy that's what i think allows people to propel really you know high and 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 that could be in anything that could be in the product development side that can be in the um you know that could be in the sort of um the 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 engineering perspective it could be in management it could be running you know great big kind of engineering teams engineering products could be in a range of things but you know having that passion or the capability like I said, that's I find is one of the biggest differentiators between good and great, I guess. But yeah, that's what I took out of it. Well, look, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Um, but stay with us because obviously we've got one more interview that we have earlier trailed in the show. A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Right, so Chris Johnson from Nokia, head of global enterprise business at Nokia. Um, Now very much a company who uh, are leading when it comes to connectivity and connectivity infrastructure, but also this is a lot about Industry 4.0, application of latest tech um, to, to industry where you've got kind of legacy manual processes and so on. So that, that's interesting. But Akish, I bet you didn't know this. Nokia, obviously, Finnish company, we, we talked a lot about the phones earlier. They started off in the wood pulping industry. So it shows just this This is not a company that has succumbed to the Kodak moment. Mm, very much uh, evolutionary, I want to say, you know. 
Exactly. I, I think there's a lot that can be learned actually by looking at Nokia because to go from so, so from such a dominant position in one market to then reinvent themselves is really very interesting. So look, we're going to hand over to Chris. Enjoy this interview and we'll be back next week. Joining me today, we have Chris from Nokia. Chris Johnson, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, before we start, uh, why don't you tell us who you are in terms of what you do for Nokia? And then maybe we'll go into who Nokia are, because it would seem like an apparent, like a very obvious uh, thing to a lot of people, but maybe not so when you when you dig under the surface. Thank you. So, so I'm uh, Chris Johnson of uh, Nokia's enterprise business, which is really um, the kind of uh, the, the the movement on from the the pure telco business, which is Nokia's primary focus today, uh, into um, the industry, the world of Industry 4.0. I suppose that move into the world of Industry 4.0, as I kind of slightly alluded to, is not what people would immediately imagine Nokia would be in the business of. So before we kind of deal with what people's preconceptions about the business might be, should we take it back and and ask actually where Nokia came from, where the origins of the company are? Yeah, uh, so, so Nokia's history goes back like more than 150 years. Not many people know that. Uh, We started out actually in the wood pulp business. We've done uh, rubber products, rubber boots, in fact, um, tires. We've produced TVs. And probably in more recent history, everybody remembers Nokia for the the mobile phone, where we were market leaders. Uh, But even that goes back, um, that business finished probably in about 2008, 2009, um, so more recently, we've become uh, the uh, one of the world's leaders in um, radio and telecommunications connectivity infrastructure, and and really the um, the, the recent history is uh, the coming together really of a company called Siemens Networks, of Alcatel, of Lucent, and of course Nokia itself um, into a, a global powerhouse in, in in connectivity and communications. And, and we're um, we're rolling out uh, most of the uh, 5G networks around the world today, and we've been involved in the 4G, 3G, 2G before that. So, so a long history, and 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 that's that brings us up to the current day. I'd imagine that long history, given that the mobile phone element of it was in a B two C market, and you're primarily in a B two B market, doesn't hamper you in the slightest. I, I'd imagine actually it's quite a nice thing because people, even if it's not necessarily relevant or or rooted in what you do today it's it's a nice piece of heritage i suppose there's a familiarity with that brand which can't really hurt i think i think that the, yeah the brand uh the, the feeling about the brand is really really positive i, I guess um in, in the modern era we just need to recommunicate to the world what nokia does and of course the the 4g 5g era is something not necessarily associated with nokia but but where we actually lead the market and and as we look forward, um, the whole industrial world is an area we're branching into. So we continue to evolve, if you like, into new places. And uh, an industry is definitely a big focus going forward. How would you how would you categorise the DNA of the business? Listening to you, I, I don't I don't think it's fair to say necessarily that it's uh, by heritage a technology company. Whilst it works obviously in technology now, it sounds more like it's a it's an innovator. I mean, if you think about wood pulps and wellington boots it's kind of sounds like it's always been at the forefront of industry no matter what the industry is necessarily rather than the sector yeah i think you know the evolution the constant evolution of nokia um by its very nature defines us as an innovative company and uh and that constant change is 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 probably personified by um our bell labs subsidiary so bell labs is part of the alcatel lucent acquisition we made going back five or six years ago, um, you know, massive heritage in, in pioneering telecommunications over over decades and decades, many um, super experienced uh, professionals and, and technology fellows, patents being created. So I'd say, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a company that's steeped in innovation history and, and that, that projects going forward again as we start to look at, you know, really helping the world become more productive outside of the pure the pure telecom space but but in industry let's talk about what we mean by industry 4.0 because we love it we love jargon and we love buzzwords you know web 3 is getting thrown around a lot at the minute uh, and industry 4.0 feels like another kind of term that i think people within the sector within the industry get 
But this podcast does have an audience which possibly is entering the workforce as much as those that are well established in it. So what what do you mean when you talk about Industry 4.0? So Industry 4.0 is is really the application of the latest technologies to industry settings where there's a a legacy um, base of machinery, of, of manual processes, ways of doing things. That, that are combined with, with, with new technologies like robotics, but nevertheless, the process of really um, automating those man and machine environments using, using the latest technology. So that's, that's how I would see Industry 4.0. It's an opportunity to really uh, create massive productivity increases um, whilst probably being a bit more sustainable at the same time. So you mentioned the word productivity. A lot of organisations are rightly concerned with productivity right now. We've had this huge change in the, the relationship between employer and employee. But even prior to the pandemic, people were beginning to get worried about the idea of automation. Was automation going to take away jobs? But you mentioned you mentioned another word there. You talked about opportunity. How do you see what's going on affecting the workforce and how it defines, I suppose, the workforce over the next five years or so? It's a really interesting point, and, and the you know we come out of the pandemic, and and we see a world where there are really um, a shortage of of people and skills uh, available, both in in manual tasks and more more skillful tasks. There's a real skills shortage, um, and of course this this advent of new technology of digitization brings some new technologies along at the same time. So, you know, the Internet of Things, uh, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, machine learning, cloud, 5G networks. So all of this technical stuff is there to be applied uh, to this environment where, where the workforce isn't necessarily um, set up to support to, uh, the, the, the new world, the productive world. So so I think today is, is, is super interesting because we've got this sort of contrast of skill shortage um, labor shortage we've got the technology to go address that and, and this is kind of fundamentally what industry 4.0 is all about we've got a massive opportunity today to really impact uh, uh, by bringing all of this together kind of think about it in another way it's it's moving from the sort of 20th century where we saw mass production and consumerism uh, of that production to to an era where we want to make that mass production super agile, super innovative, super optimized, um, super sustainable for the future. This is the opportunity we have ahead of us. I suppose that is that is great rhetoric, but it is also um, put into practice in your your own environments. Uh, unless I'm horribly mistaken, you 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 opened the factory of the future. Um, about a year or so ago, which was cited by the World Economic Forum, right? What, what, what from what you've been talking about actually is put into practice so that so the industry can see how this is actually applied? Yeah. So, so of course, we're pioneering the use of connectivity to to be at the centre of these new, highly automated environments, um, automated for productivity, but also automated. In a, in a way that changes the way people work. And we talk about now the rise of what we call the new collar worker. Yeah, not the white collar worker, not the blue collar worker, but the, the new collar worker who is, is um, at the center of being this automation conduit of, of um, uh, adding value and productivity to the organization by understanding the technology and applying it, uh, potentially earning more, uh, potentially working more flexible hours, potentially working in a in a much safer environment. So we see, and, and we're, we're implementing this in our own factories, you know, uh, connectivity that automates machinery and processes, uh, takes uh, the relationship between people and machines to a new level where um, we're, we're talking about the augmented reality of a machine. We're talking about the remote monitoring and management of machines to, to make them, the environment more productive. So, so not only is technology playing a role in the factory, but, but also the people and their relationship with the technology changes, which can improve the quality of life for the, for the humans involved, as well as you know, the economics of the, of the workplace. That's interesting because I, I, 
might have even been my wife that brought me up on this, that I was, I've been talking very broadly in terms of post-pandemic, but through the, the lens of, of a traditional white-collar worker, talking about productivity and the new relationship with an employer and the benefits and freedoms and flexibility and so on and so forth. And when we talk about hybrid working, it's very much at the frame of the, the office worker and how that, that environment has been transformed. So I suppose the new-collar worker is, is quite important. It's quite fundamental to talk about how this, this can affect everyone, whether it's traditionally seen as a as a more manual job or a blue collar job or a white collar job there's opportunity for everyone right yeah it, it's that sort of um hybrid of cognitive and and traditional physical right in, environment it's the it, it's the the kind of harmonization of these two um and i think what's really interesting is that there is a gap that there are skills gaps there are labor force gaps at the moment that are going to enable the technology to enable the factory or the workplace to become more productive and so i think a really key element of this this whole conversation is how uh, you know governments education how training organizations start helping the workforce learn and and by the way relearn constantly through their career those kind of cognitive skills and how the cognitive augmented world um, fits into the physical world, um, where you know the, the factory environment, the oil refinery, the, the the place where the physical assets exist. So there's kind of a really big education theme here that's going to happen. I'm not going to ask you where the onus lies because I don't think that's a particularly fair question <laughs> to say whose responsibility is it to make sure that that we have a a workforce that's ready for this. But in terms of where you've seen it working. Are there any examples of any any countries, any any environments where that link up between educators, government, industry seems to be working that others can take lesson from? I think I think it's starting to happen. I, I would say that it is the responsibility of, for example, Nokia, right? So as a as a leader in the the, the kind of technical side of this, the, the innovation side of this. We have to help the universities and the, the, the colleges and the schools develop the programs, the curriculum um, to, to start uh, getting people interested in the, the, the new kind of cognitive, physical crossover world. Um, so that's very much a responsibility, I think, of us as, a, as an innovator. I think governments have a massive role to play, for sure. I, I think the the traditional curriculum is not going to serve um, the, the the new industry 4.0 world particularly well. So we need to be, again, developing training programs. The government needs to be almost stimulating training programs, um, both both in universities and, and colleges, but, but also kind of um, um, at, at a kind of uh, a technical skill level that enables everybody to have access to, to, the, to the learning and skills needed for the future. So I think the government plays a big role um, and education establishments themselves, of course, is, is, is the obvious one. And, and, and I do see a big opportunity for, for, for training, training firms and innovators in the training space to come forward and develop uh, programs that, that can start converting the workforce, can start getting young people interested in, in the kind of cognitive augmented world that we're going to be uh, working in in the future. So I think there's kind of a broad range of responsibilities to this. Has, has, it, has it got started at pace yet? I think we're still in early stages, um, but we're definitely looking at our own organisation, the skills that we have, the training that we're giving our people. We know that we need to adapt to this world, and therefore I think as we do that, we'll start to, to influence the education establishments where we, where we have linkages as well. Yeah, and on that point, I mean, you mentioned where you have linkages. You've got big presence in the States, in Germany. Obviously, I'm talking to you. We're both based in the UK. Nokia is a Scandinavian country. Are there, are there any kind of countries where you kind of go, they've really got their act together? Or is it a case that the, that the UK is, is making headway? Yeah, I'm going to say there's, there's, uh, the, the, in North America, we're seeing very rapid growth, very rapid adoption of, of Industry 4.0 innovation, if you like. Um, so certainly North America, uh, the Nordic countries, I would also say that's uh, that's true. Um, so there are pockets, I think, pockets that are ahead. And, and I tell you, one of the, the, the common themes, actually, is the availability of um, the spectrum that we use for the connectivity that's needed to create this Industry 4.0 effect. 
So in the countries where that spectrum has been allocated by governments, uh, and I'm talking spectrum outside of the telco uh, spectrum space, then then the connectivities can be applied. And, and, and this tends to accelerate the whole process we found. But North America typically is where that's happening first. About five minutes or so ago, we mentioned sustainability. Um, Industry 4.0 will take huge compute power, right? And it will take... Um a lot, a lot of connectivity, as we as we stated, there is a carbon footprint cost to the to the internet itself. Uh, how are you making sure that that's offset, or or maybe not even offset, but but taken into account to make sure that this is truly su- sustainable? Yeah, and and we're doing a lot of work in with our own technology to just look at you know power consumption, efficiency in the supply chain, etc. To 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 do our bit for as as Nokia globally, but. I think I think what's interesting as a as a as a byproduct of Industry 4.0 is a byproduct of helping um, heavy industries become more productive. We're finding that there's um, a, a huge sustainability impact. Meaning, uh, how can we um, re- reduce the amount of wastage in the goods in goods out in in the you know the materials that we're using to create the products? If there's efficiency and agility in the production process. Then we're not we're we're wasting less products in industry, and 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 as we waste less products, typically we're we're also optimizing the amount of energy that we're using, the amount of water that we're using in the in the kind of end to end production process. So, so I think as um as industry four point zero becomes more and more of a a, a big trend, and it, and we by the way expect it to be a, an enormous economic trend, then the sustainability impacts are are huge in parallel. And, and as I say, it's really about energy, waste and water and uh, and the ability to really optimise all of that. And, and this should be, you know, there's some really stunning, stunning um, uh, advantages that can be gained from applying technology to traditional industry. You can imagine there's just a, a, a fantastic upside for the sustainability movement. Look, it's a, it's a fascinating area. I really appreciate you spending uh, 20 minutes or so talking through some of the some of the high-level themes around this with us. So uh, given where we are, given when this will be going out, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And thanks for your time today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.